Our culture is full of discontent people. In 2019, just last year, the Washington Post printed a, a study. It wasn't their study. They printed a, a study that has tracked the happiness of Americans since 1976. So 44 years of monitoring our happiness. And the numbers keep declining, even though we, we, we make leaps and bounds in technology and prosperity. The study said there's been a 50% decrease, 50% decrease in happiness of Americans since 1990. Interestingly, the same study, the Washington Post showed, said the study showed that Republicans are twice as happy as Democrats, by the way. And the study was attributed, I knew I'd get something out of Borier. The study attributed that to the fact that Republicans were typically more religious than Democrats. So it really wasn't just their political platform, but, but what you know, made up the, the group of, of people. And, and it's, it's, it's true. Promiscuity, drugs, overeating, job hopping, all of that is the way the world seeks to find contentment. Our culture sings songs about never being able to find what they're looking for. The, the Rolling Stones saying, I can't get no satisfaction. The world's primary pastime it runs on discontentment. Uh, John MacArthur said, your favorite TV show is not what's really on TV. Your show is there to make you watch the commercials. So a company can tell you that you need something that you didn't even know you wanted before you turned the TV on. To be discontent is a longing for something better than your present situation. And that doesn't sound so bad until you realize that your heart is the primary instrument that manufactures those longings and, and God is the one who controls your circumstances. Proverbs 27, 20 says, Sheol, which is the grave or, or hell, and Abaddon, the abyss, are never satisfied nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. God compares the desires of our heart with the grave. It's just never satisfied. And the sin of discontentment is at the core of, uh, of, of dissatisfaction with what God has ordained. It, it's a kind of restless craving for something that you don't have, and, and that is often the, the, the result of ongoing circumstances, which a good God has designed, by the way. There are plenty of examples of discontent in the Bible, the nation of Israel being the biggest one. I mean, think about the nation of Israel. They came out of Egypt, out of bondage. They were freed by the miraculous parting of the, of the Red Sea. And a few days after Moses goes on the mountain to receive God's law, the people get tired of waiting and they make a golden calf to worship. And when, they, when, when they're caught on the carpet, they blame Moses and God for being gone too long. You were gone too long. Our fallen natures are, are naturally discontent. And one writer said it was because we, we are always playing the if-only game. If only I had more money in my bank account, I would be content. If, if only I had a wife, I would be complete. If only my church did things a certain way. If only my children were better behaved. If, if only I had a job that I enjoyed. And the if-onlys are endless. We tend to think that a change of circumstance will... Uh, will will bring a, a change in our contentment. But all it does is give our discontented heart a different view. There are plenty of scriptures that, that warn against discontentment. 
Hebrews 13, 5, many that you know well. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you have because you have Christ. What more could you want other than, other than him? Here's another one that you probably know. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Give thanks in all circumstance, uh, circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know what God's will is for you in every circumstance, even if you don't know what God's will is? It's to be thankful. And then one that you couldn't leave out, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. I've underlined the words for you. Now there is great gain in godliness as long as it's accompanied with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can not take anything out of the world, but with food and clothing, with these, be content. Now the first half of the passage shows, uh, uses the word contentment twice, but the second half of the passage actually shows us where the issue is. Watch the second half of this. Notice how it starts with a, an adversative. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, the issue comes from our desires, not our circumstances. And contentment is a desire-level issue. Discontentment is sin. Puritan Thomas Boston, in his sermon, The Hellish Sin of Discontent, said the, ten com- uh, the Tenth Commandment actually forbids it. Thou shalt not covet is a direct command against discontentment. He said discontentment is distrusting God. Contentment is trusting God implicitly. Thus, discontent, to be discontent is the opposite of faith. He said discontentment is to dispute God's plan. Uh, When you're discontent, it's my desire to be sovereign. I think my plan is better for me. Or as one writer put it, I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. Discontentment desires something God has not been pleased to give us. He gave us His Son... Therefore, can we not trust him for the trivial things of life? Discontentment subtly, or perhaps not so subtly, declares that God's made a mistake. My present circumstances are wrong, and they should be otherwise. I will only be content when they change to suit my desires. He said discontentment denies the wisdom of God and exalts my wisdom. Discontent. Discontentment was at the heart of the first sin. Satan said, has God really said? And that's the question at the heart of all of our discontentment. Well, today, the Apostle Paul is going to help us with this besetting sin. He's going to teach us the secret of contentment. And we've already finished the very helpful instruction on, the, on steadiness in the Christian life that was outlined in Philippians 4, 1 through 9. And now we're going to start a new section this morning. It's actually one of the last ones in the book of Philippians where Paul offers thankful praise in verses 10 through 20. And right out of the gate, he addresses the topic of of contentment. I mean, Paul just taught us to to, to stop being anxious. Don't be anxious in, in any circumstance. And now he's going to show us how to be content in all of those circumstances, whatever they are. 
The topic shouldn't surprise us because all of the components for true contentment are found laced throughout the, this letter. I mean, Philippians has four chapters, 104 verses, and Paul speaks of joy 18 times and Jesus 17 times. And there's an obvious connection. Joy comes when we follow our master's pattern and his masterful plan. And as we do that, we will find true contentment. Philippians is, is a letter that's partially a thank you note it's an update about Paul's circumstances in Rome. It's an exhortation toward unity, and it's a warning about false teachers. In verses 10 through 20 is the thank you note portion of the, of the letter, tucked away in, in, in all four chapters here. This, and Paul thanks this beloved church, and as he does, he teaches us two things. He shares with us the secret of contentment in verses 10 through 14, and then he teaches us the th- theology of Christian giving. In verses 15 through 20, which is coming. And frankly, I can think of a, no better topic for, for this week as we're approaching Thanksgiving, and this one in particular. Did you know that Thanksgiving 2020 is the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims uh, uh, arriving at Plymouth? Puritans from the Church of England seeking freedom to worship Christ without governmental interference. That's what they came for. And as Paul closes out this great letter... He expresses his thanks to the church for the gift that they sent to him. And his thank you note has four parts. Let me kind of give you the skeletal system of this section, and then we'll look at it in detail. Look, if you would, at verse 10. There is praise for their care for him. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your care or concern for me. And then he gives a qualification about his thanks. He's giving thanks for them. Here's the qualification. Um... You were concerned for me, but you lacked opportunity. He's not saying that that they did anything bad by just now coming. And then he gives a second qualification in verses 11 through 13. Not that I speak in respect to want. And then the praise is finally restated in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. So there's thanks, there's praise. There are two qualifications, and then there's a follow-up in praise again. And within verses 11 through 13, the center of this verse, is, uh, this section, is where Paul teaches us the secret to contentment. Paul said he learned it through circumstances, and he was empowered to possess it through Christ's strength. It's a verse that you probably all know. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Or, as we will call it, two surprising secrets to Christian contentment. Paul says contentment is learned through circumstance and contentment comes through Christ's capability. Verses 13 and 14. Look if you would at the first one. The first surprising secret is contentment is learned through circumstances. Verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. One of the most important things that you can learn in studying the Bible is that, that what you're reading is about real people writing about real circumstances. And so here's Paul in his current circumstances writing to a church that's been extremely helpful to him in the Lord's ministry. 
And just like when you write an email, there's, there's some place in it where you're going to give thanks for something that the person that you're writing to you know, may have done for you. Like, like you're going to thank Aunt Joni for the recent uh, birthday gift. Or you're going to thank another brother or sister for, for the Lord, uh, for them praying for you. Well, Paul is thanking his church for their, their gift to sustain him in prison. And it had been a long time since they're able uh, to do that, about 10 years to be exact. I mean, you remember how Philippians, the, the church in Philippi, was planted in Acts 16. Paul comes to, to Philippi and he preached the gospel by the river and several women were converted. And, and then after that conversion, there's a riot that breaks out. Paul is thrown in jail and then he's delivered out of jail in, a, in an earthquake. And, and that was 10 years ago. And yet the church loved him greatly. And they hadn't had an opportunity to express their tangible care since then. And that's what he means in verse 10 when he says, you lacked opportunity. The, the word uh, is from the, the root kairos, which means season or, or time. They had no season to fulfill their affection for Paul. But their affection was still there. And now he says their, their affection had been revived. You have revived your concern for me. The word is, uh, is for when a fruit tree blooms again. Just like we're in, in the, uh, going into winter and there's a tree that once bloomed and the sap goes down in the roots and it doesn't cease to be alive. It, it's still a fruit tree. And then when the spring comes, it, it will revive. It'll, it'll bloom again. There's a season to that. That's what Paul is saying here. Doesn't it create a longing in your heart when you truly care for someone and there's nothing that you can do to help them, especially when you know that they're, that they're hurting? Paul says the Philippians were that way about him. They knew he was in jail. They, they knew he had needs, they, but they couldn't relieve him, which is why they end up sending Epaphroditus along with this gift. And Paul's thanking them for it. And doesn't it renew your love for that same person when they finally when you finally get a chance to meet their needs. I mean, you never stop caring for them. But that expression was dormant, and now it can bloom again, and that brings you joy. Paul makes it clear that it wasn't because they intentionally neglected him. It was circumstantial. That's what he's saying in verse 10. But Paul had been in situations that created need. And in those situations, he doesn't blame the church, and he doesn't blame God for that matter. He says he knows that they desired to help, but they couldn't. And more importantly, he knows that God orders his circumstances, including the delay. And that's so vital whenever you're thinking about contentment. I mean, Paul knew that God was sovereign not only over supernatural intervention, but also over the natural orchestration of things. I mean, he knew that God could accomplish his purposes through, uh, through you know, some supernatural thing like he did with the earthquake. He freed him from prison in Philippi through an earthquake. Miraculous intervention. Paul knew that God could do that. But Paul also knew that God also accomplishes his purposes through normal events that are in place. Like in this case, keeping him in prison to spread the gospel to Caesar's household and teaching him contentment through their delay of sending money. Knowing both of those things, Paul, uh, Paul never grew discontent over the fact that they hadn't sent anything to him. You have to fight to think that way. Uh, I gave you a practical process to whenever discontentment begins to creep in your heart several years ago. 
And do you remember, uh, well, let me say this. When I was in school, the fire department used to come. You might remember this. And the fire department would come to school, and they would teach you, if you if your clothes ever catch on fire, you're to do three things. Stop, drop, and roll. Do you remember that? Well, if you ever feel the fire of discontentment burning, you should do the same thing. You should stop and drop and roll your thoughts to, to Christ. Stop when you recognize discontentment creeping in. The first thing to do is to stop whatever you're doing. Stop grumbling and complaining. Stop sulking or stomping around the house. Stop the critical tongue toward others that often comes from the abundance of a discontented heart. Stop looking at, at things that are producing the covetousness to begin with. Your mind's like a train. It gets on track and then it picks up steam, and the more fuel that you add to, to, to it, the, the, the faster the engine goes. And you have to remove the fuel first that's adding to the fire. So stop. Always remember, sin has babies, and they're ugly babies. Bad thinking, you have, to break the, the, you have to break the water. It's just running downhill, and you have to put a water breaker in there, or it's just going to keep picking up steam, and it's going to carry everything in its wake until it crashes at the bottom. So stop bad thinking. That's exactly what Paul just got done telling us. Stability. Whatsoever things are, think on these things. And then you have to drop whatever you're treasuring other than Christ. Look at what you're focused on. If you are feeling discontent, it's because you perceive an obstacle between you and what you really prize. I want something and I can't get to it. And discontentment's what happens in between. Consider what you actually want in those moments. Is it rest? Is it peace? Is it security? If it's not Christ, then repent. Because until you change the prize, then... Then, then your heart won't switch. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And, and then finally, roll your thoughts toward the Lord. I mean, getting your spiritual eyes back on the right prize only comes by, by thinking. And we're discontent because we're meditating on the wrong things. So we have to think on the right things, which is exactly what Paul just got done telling us. Paul doesn't want them to think that he lacked contentment while he waited. So he qualifies his thanks. Look, if you would, at verse 11. He says, Not that I speak from need. It wasn't discontent. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And, and the I is emphatic. I have learned. So now he gets to the heart of the issue. Contentment is learned through circumstances. And they're taught through circumstances in every situation, and they're instructed in the extremes. The tool of learning is every circumstance. Now Paul puts the key in the door and begins to unlock the secret. Contentment is learned, and its lessons come through everyday circumstances. The word that Paul chooses here for contentment is the word, same word that pagan philosophers used. It meant to reach a point where nothing affects you. That's what the Stoics wanted to do. I want to get to a point where I'm absolutely affected by nothing on the outside. I'm sufficient in myself. John MacArthur said the Stoics believed that the concept of contentment was reached when you come to the point of total indifference. When you were indifferent about everything, then and only then would you be content. You sort of thought yourself into an I don't care attitude. 
He said, one Stoic writer said this. This is how you get contentment. Begin with a cup or a household utensil, and if it breaks, say, I don't care. Then go onto a horse or a pet dog, and if something happens to it, say, I don't care. And then go onto yourself. If you're hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. And if you go on long enough and try hard enough, you'll come to a state where you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. That's not what Paul learned. It's not Christian contentment. That's not even contentment. That's sinful indifference. Biblical contentment doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean I don't care. It's not reaching the place where I don't care. Biblical contentment means that you've learned through all of those circumstances, whether it's the cup breaking or your sickness or a loved one dying, in all those circumstances, contentment means you've learned to rest in God. Contentment is a spiritual state of being gratified with sovereign circumstances. It's an inward state of being satisfied with God's lot that's not dependent upon what happens outside of you. It's not lack of caring. It's caring more about God and pleasing Him and what He's given you than your circumstances. Contentment has its eyes on God and evaluates based on His promises and His character toward us. Contentment says, with whatever I have or whatever I am, I am satisfied in God. Charles Spurgeon said the cure for discontent lies in living under a constant sense of divine presence. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. And you learn to develop that in everyday circumstances. Paul says routine circumstances. Notice what he says here. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance, whatever state. And then he also talks about extraordinary circumstances. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. And those you learn to trust God, and you walk by faith. It's a result of, of contented maturity. I mean, younger people are typically more volatile than older ones because they haven't experienced enough circumstance to, to temper them. The highs and the lows, the, the withs and the withouts. And as you go through that, and you stumble and you get your eyes back on Christ, or as you keep your eyes on Christ, it tempers you. You learn contentment, which is what the Apostle Paul is teaching us here. That's why Paul tells Timothy, don't lay hands on a man for leadership too soon. It can fall in the snare of the devil. There's no microwave version for contentment. No tra uh, crash course in spiritual satisfaction. The only way you learn it is by going through circumstances over time. Allowing God to teach you through them. And as you do, you'll gain contentment that can stand up even in the extremes. Look at you at verse 12. Paul says, notice he, he says, I know. He says, I, I have learned, past tense. He's learned contentment. And he learned it through the circumstances and in the circumstances. And now he says in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. This is something that Paul's learned. So it should encourage you because it means something that you can learn. Paul was instructed in these extremes. I know how to get along with little, and I know how to live in prosperity, or as the King James says, abased and abounding. I mean, the two words mean the extremes of human existence, and Paul picks these words on purpose. I mean, the one 
means dirt poor, as we would say. Absolutely nothing, destitute. And the other means to the point you have more than you even want. And what he means by that is both of those extremes and then everything in between. He's able to be content. He said, I know how to live in in both of those extremes and everything, everything in between. I mean, Paul said in the verse that we read earlier in 1 Timothy 6, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. This word means even when you lack those things, even when you lack food and clothing. It's the first word. What would you go without for Christ? What have you gone out without for Christ? I mean, some people won't even give up Sunday morning, a Sunday morning of sleep to come out to worship Him. Would you give up a weekend that's very precious to you so you could learn how to do biblical counsel? Would you give up a week of your two-week vacation in order to do VBS or, or go on a short-term mission trip? Would you, would you give Him more than just your leftover money, maybe something that actually cost you something? Paul knew what it was like to give all to Christ and be content. But he also knew how to do something just as hard, I think. Notice what else it says. I know how to get along with humble means. and I also know how to live in prosperity. Paul also knew how to receive all of God's blessings without ever taking his eyes off of Christ. And I think that might even be more difficult than living without. The second word means to abound. It means to live in prosperity, to be filled and have an abundance. The first word means to lack even what you need. This second word means to have even more than you want. This one's probably where we we live. So which is harder? Is it harder to live with an empty hand and wish that it was filled the battle, con- temptation, discontent? Or is it more difficult to have a full hand and have to continually pry it open to give what's in it away? Which is more spiritually dangerous? To have too little where you're tempted to go around God and get what you need or have too much to where you forget God altogether? Proverbs says both are dangerous. So be careful seeking either one of them too much. Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. says, Keep deception and lives far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. The two extremes. Feed me with the food that is my portion. The Lord knows exactly what you can handle. So that I will not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? That's what we do in prosperity. And that I will not become impoverished and steal and profane the name of my God. Paul says he's learned contentment to the point that he was able to look beyond the lack and he was able to see farther than the loot to the God who's who's behind it. And he's already been modeling that for us. You want to be like that? Then follow Paul. Paul says he started with having a mind, uh, the mind of Christ. Let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus in chapter 2. And that led to his goal uh, of life. But Paul said he wanted to be a sacrificial drink offering poured over the faith of others. That brought rejoicing in the Lord in chapter 3. The fruit of that was he was anxious for nothing in chapter 4, verse 6. And that brought the peace of God, which passed all understanding. And then in verse 9, the God of peace was with him. 
the Apostle Paul says he waged war against discontentment in anyone. He says contentment is learned, it's taught through your circumstances, and it's instructed in extremes. Look at the second one. The second secret to contentment is that it comes through Christ. Look at you at verse 13, verse that you know well. I, I would say, uh, you know, other than John 3.16 or Jesus wept, you probably know this verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now the question is, what does Paul mean by the all things? Paul says he was sustained in all these circumstances that he just got done, uh, just got done describing. The circumstances that were mundane, the everyday things that he learned in life, and then both extremes and everything in between. That's what the passage means. He was sustained in that by one thing, divine power. I mean, this is not a, a catch-all verse or what you pray when your team is 21 points down in a football game. We get in the huddle. I can do it. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not the context of this verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me doesn't mean that there were no limits to Paul's capabilities, his physical capabilities. I mean, Paul just got done saying he was hungry and he was full. He, in a one occasion, Paul was even beaten so bad he was left for dead. He was stoned and they thought he was dead. They drag him outside of the city and leave him there. In 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul said, We who live, are, we, we are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. He was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was tortured. He finally lost his life for Jesus' sake. What does this verse mean? This verse means that in all of those situations, when Paul came to the end of his own abilities, Christ then empowered him with his. He sustained him until earthly provision was made. That's the context, the all things, all those circumstances that he just described. He's learned contentment in all of those circumstances. But when he needs spiritual provision to go through them, then Christ's power is where, where he gets it. When a church goes 10 years without increasing your support, or when a company, your company goes 10 years without increasing your salary, when you have more than you need and you're tempted to forget God, and when you have less than you want and you're, you're lured to cut spiritual corners. In those moments, when you get beyond your spiritual resources internally, your own resources, then God's divine power comes in when you look to Christ. That's what Paul means. And in every case, and in between, when you run out of human steam to carry on, then Christ infuses you with, with His power. And in those situations of life, when I have no more human resources, I receive Christ's divine empowerment. That's what Paul means. And that's when you're going to experience it. I mean, think about this. When you come to the end of a human ability, when you get to the point where you can't, that's where you begin to turn to the Lord who can, right? Isn't what you're tempted to do? I mean, we don't ever like to get to the point where we're out of control. I mean, we like spirituality whenever it's lived up to our point of what we're able to do. And if we are out of control, we always want to know where the lever is, where we can lay hold of it ourselves. Many times it's only whenever you get to the point where you can't that you depend upon the Lord. And Paul says whenever you get to the point where you can't and you look to the Lord for, to depend upon Him, 
Christ does when He came. And it's in those moments that's when you experience divine enablement and also divine contentment, which is one of the reasons that God brings you to that place to begin with. You know, the Bible says there are two reasons that God brings us to the point where we can't make it on our own unless we have Christ's strength. The first one is right here. So you'll learn to trust in His strength. And the second reason is so that you won't exalt yourself. Another place where Paul talks about this very thing, you probably know as well, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. Look at what Paul says there. Because of the extraordinary greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He said to me, My grace, my strength is sufficient for you, For my power, my strength, is perfected in weakness. And what was Paul's response? Exactly the same thing that ours should be. Look at what Paul goes on to say. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I will delight in weakness and insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And 2 Corinthians 10 says that God allows us to get beyond our ability, not only so we'll experience His provision, like in Philippians, but so we won't exalt ourselves, so we won't become proud. Paul said he'd seen visions, and God gave him a thorn in the flesh so he wouldn't exalt himself, and the thorn in the flesh wasn't the issue. The thorn in the flesh was to drive him to depend upon the Lord even though he asked it to be removed, God says, my grace is sufficient. I can do all things. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, Paul. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what Paul is saying here to the Philippians. I learned this through circumstances. I learned it through the thorn in the flesh. I learned it through the vision. I was on the highest high. I was at the lowest low. And in all those circumstances, I learned that in both of those cases, I can be content and I can depend on God's strength. So if you're at the end of your rope, rejoice. God has you right where you need to be to experience His strength. And if He keeps you there longer than you want to stay, it may be because He's trying to protect you so you won't self-destruct or become proud. And in both cases, His grace is promised. And it's promised until God's grace comes through others. Look at what verse 14. Look at how He rounds this out. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. How long does that strength last? Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my afflictions. I mean, the Bible doesn't expect you can do it on your own, where where you're supposed to trust God, you're supposed to use your right thinking and right practice, that you just say, "Uh, God, come and help me. You put forth that effort with the gifts and, the, and the, 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 the tools that the Lord's given you. You do what you know to do, and when you, when you exhaust your abilities, then Christ comes in and He strengthens you and carries you the rest of the way. 
And God's grace comes through that Christ power infused in you, or that grace comes through other people. And so here in verse 14, Paul wraps up the first part of his thank you note, and then he brings us back to where he started. He thanked them in verse 10, and now he praises them for their concern. He says, you've done well to share with me in my difficulty. Something noble, something beautiful. And one of the best ways to keep your eyes off of your own needs or your own abundance is to focus on the needs of others, isn't it? You struggle with discontentment? It may be because you need more circumstances to come in your life so you can learn how to go through the extremes. If you struggle with discontentment in your life, you, you may be trying to depend only on your own resources and you need to turn to Christ and let him strengthen you. And also maybe because you're not meeting the needs of others, which is a good thing to do. Paul says, keep a hole in your bucket if it's full and fill your bucket with service of others if it's empty. Sharing another's difficulty will give you perspective. But everything Paul is teaching us comes through lifelong training. There is no microwave contentment. It's learned. It's practiced. And sometimes it's hard. Tim Challies wrote, We must not treat our Christian lives like we train our dogs. He said, like most people, we plan to train our, our dogs until they were perfectly behaved and could go head-to-head with a police dog. <laughs> and for a while, we made good progress. We taught the dog to do its doggy business outdoors instead of indoors, and that took only a week or two. We taught the dog to sit, which was simple enough because all we needed to do was, was use treats to bribe a hungry animal. Healing went passably well except for those times when another dog was anywhere in the vicinity these initial things were simple and it was no great challenge to train the dog so she was halfway respectable but after that it got much more difficult lie down beg crawl stay off the furniture don't stare at me while i'm eating be calm we gave up long before the dog could master any of these and in the end Like most people, we settled for a barely trained but tolerable dog. We settled for good enough. And he said, sometimes we settle for the same thing in our Christian lives. Good enough. We think we're complete when we master the big sins like drunkenness and stealing and adultery. And the things, those things are important for sure, but but there are many other issues we must master that are beneath the surface like discontentment and envy and pride and jealousy. And they lie within the heart and they're much harder to, to overcome. Learn from Paul. And Paul says you learn from your circumstances. God can be trusted. He's in control of your circumstances, and he'll strengthen you in the midst of them. And so he says this week, give thanks. Why don't you bow your heads? Are you discontent, maybe even today, with your circumstances? One of the questions you have to ask is, what are you focused on? What do you want more than Christ?
maybe you doubt the Lord loves you or he's controlling even the situation that, that you're in. If so, then stop. Drop whatever that is that's in your hand that you prize and then, then roll your thinking over to Christ. And when you get beyond your own abilities, then trust in the Lord's. Ask him. He'll help you. And then if it doesn't work, you're still discontent, focus your needs on others. Focus on the needs of others. And the Lord will take your eyes off yourself. And you'll be surprised how your joy cup will fill. Father, we love you. We thank you for your truth. Thank you for confronting us, not with just the big sins, as we like to call them, but the ones that are, that are harder to root out. And I thank you. We have so much to be thankful for. And I ask you, Father, that you would help us to be a contented people that rests in you as you take us through the ups and downs of life. And when the wind blows, our anchor holds in Christ. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing, Be Still My Soul. The Lord's on your side. Still my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to Amen. Now that's only half of it. Now you've been instructed. Now you have to go put it into practice. Um, but one of the things that you can do as you're considering it today is make sure you come back tonight at 6 o'clock. Uh, testimonies in each baptism, eight of them as Pastor Birdie mentioned. Then we'll take uh, the Lord's Supper and we'll do some business that uh, we need to do as a, as a church. So hope you'll come back tonight and enjoy that. Father, we love you. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to be thankful and contented people this week in Jesus' name. Amen.